Uh, well, the little ones are being dismissed. We're continuing in uh, the book of Hebrews in the middle of chapter 13 this morning. I think it's printed in the bulletin, so if you have a bulletin, you're all set. <clears throat> Been an interesting week uh, in the life of our church, and uh, very interesting that this passage comes up in God's providence. Uh, one of my favorite commentators on the book of Hebrews, William Lane, says that everything really in this, uh, in this chapter flows from, at least the first 13 verses, flows from uh, let brotherly love continue. Uh, it is hard to uh, overstate the command to love. I think that uh, what Tim said last week was spot on, and it could be replicated and hopefully is replicated uh, on a regular basis in all of our uh, hearts and lives. Uh, it is also hard to understate uh, the promises at the end of that passage uh, last week. Um, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Uh, what can man do to me? Um, I, the promises of God are to be cherished. They're to be underscored. They're to be noted. I remember um, I was in the middle of seminary, and I was staying somewhere, spending the night on the way home uh, for the summer, and uh, someone had a, a little book by Charles Spurgeon called uh, The Checkbook of Faith's Promises or something, something like that. And I, and I remember it was the, my, the first dawning uh, to me that there were promises to be remembered, to be counted on, to be leaned into, and to be prayed through. Uh, so, as we prayed this past Thursday morning, uh, we were reading, part of the reading for the day was 1 John chapter 4, uh, and you know that that's the, the great command to love, um, and we prayed that we would love each other and that we would remember the promises. And that's largely what we do in that prayer meeting on Thursday morning. I do want to encourage you to remember that that's taking place and uh, come participate with us. Uh, it's a beneficial time. It's a good way to start the morning. If we were uh, if we were in our right minds, we'd probably do it every morning. But Thursday morning is what we've got, and we we pray according to the scriptures, uh, the, and and we pray leaning into the promises of God. So that promise needs to be remembered as we dive into this passage uh, this morning. It flows right out of it. And, uh, and actually, we will reflect back on it before the end of the morning. So uh, let me read uh, for you from God's Word, uh, verses 7 to 16 in Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh, Thus far, the reading of God's word. Uh, So the passage uh, starts out. Uh, somewhat famously, this may have resonated with you uh, in the past, um, that you are to remember, we are to remember uh, those who uh, spoke the Word of God to us. We're to remember them and to imitate their faith. Uh, the implication of this text uh, is that they have died. Uh, that, that they are being asked to remember leaders, former leaders in the congregation uh, who are now with the Lord. It's the second remember in the chapter, uh, the first being remembering those in prison and those who are mistreated. It really serves in some ways as an extension of chapter 11 when we had the hall of faith and there we were remembering dozens of Old Testament saints. And as their faith was notable and worth emulating, so it is the case um, with these of more recent memory. Uh, Their faith is also worth emulating. And so that's kind of where we are denominationally. I don't know if you've been paying attention to this. Tim mentioned last week, but a week ago, uh, we had three um, uh, pastors who are important to a lot of people uh, die um, in the PCA. Uh, the one that, that a lot of people know here is Harry Reeder. I know he was uh, pretty dear to this congregation and uh, to Doug. And, uh, and so that is really a big blow uh, you also know that Tim Keller uh, finally ended his uh, long uh, battle with pancreatic cancer, and so uh, his death is notable. And then also, uh, I was uh, actually, I found about this a little bit later, but early in the week, Sunday two weeks ago, uh, Steve Smallman, who had been the pastor of McLean Presbyterian Church uh, and the uh, director of World Harvest Mission, uh, also went to be with the Lord. Uh, those, you know, one after the other, I, I knew all three of these guys. Uh, it's kind of unusual, but uh, I, I kind of feel like in some ways my ministry career has been a little bit like Forrest Gump. I keep running into people that are pretty important and trying to rub shoulders with them. But Harry and I were in seminary together, and uh, we served in the same presbytery for many years and actually spent an afternoon uh, together praying and talking about our futures as he was being called to Birmingham and I was being called to Cambridge. And uh, so long-standing friendship uh, with Harry. Steve was the director of World Harvest Mission as I served on the board there. And my time in Cambridge was largely due uh, to the influence of Tim Keller. Uh, I, along with many other ministers, had been invited uh, to New York City to see the work that they were doing in the 90s. And out of that, a church was planted in Cambridge, and I was asked to, to step in. And then in those early days, Tim would gather together uh, the several pastors that had launched uh, churches in uh, major global cities. But those guys are worth remembering. It says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And, and I'll just say uh, that for me... Um, the thing that marked Steve Smallman was his modesty. Uh, an amazingly humble guy. All of these guys were humble in their own way. Uh, but Steve was remarkable uh, in that he did not aspire 
uh, to greatness, did not aspire to a large position. Uh, he used to joke that uh, the only reason the church grew as explosively as, he did, as it did when he was the minister there was that he was the beneficiary of the Reagan administration, uh, that the Republicans came to town and the PCA uh, grew uh, exponentially. Uh, of course, the thing that everyone remembers about Harry is the, uh, the tenacity of his faith and the immense gift for preaching that he had and his absolute devotion to the Word of God, to the trustworthiness of it, and, uh, and, and really a, a fierce conviction uh, that it needed to be upheld. The thing that I remember about Tim, interestingly, I mean, Tim was flat-out brilliant, and uh, I don't know if you pay attention to these things, but I've been a little bit overwhelmed by the tributes that have occurred in the most unlikely of sources. Uh, there were two tributes in the Atlantic magazine, two in the New York Times, one even in the New Yorker, and uh, I'm, I'm just kind of shocked by that. Uh, but the thing that always struck me about Tim in the times that I spent with him was he was a man of good humor. Uh, he was a guy who um, didn't get upset, he didn't get angry, uh, he rolled with the punches, so to speak, and he was a guy that always was kind uh, and always self-effacing and always uh, willing uh, to kind of engage on a, on a humorous level. He was wry uh, in his wit. I remember him telling me one time that, uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of hot now, but no, nothing stays hot forever. You know, at some point, Redeemer's going to have to uh, face a new episode in its life. So I remember these guys. And you also remember other leaders that have gone before you, those who are with the Lord. And, uh, and you are called, and I am called, to uh, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a burden on anyone who is a pastor you know, to consider those pastors and say, you know, you know, is the same going to be said when I, when I bite the dust? And, uh, and, and in, in what way am I to live uh, in such a way that honors the Lord and in such a way that promotes the kingdom of God? Um, the reason that those old saints back in chapter 11 and these new contemporary saints that we know now uh, can be remembered and emulated is that the object of their faith, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, that's, that's the big point here is, that the, is the constancy of Jesus Christ. That was first mentioned in chapter 1. Uh, you remember the writer said, the heavens will perish, but you remain. Quoting one of the Psalms, they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The, the same notion of Jesus' constancy is implied throughout the rest of the letter. Jesus can be counted on. In fact, he's the one who is making the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. The promise on which you lean is the promise of Jesus, who is constant, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It really is a bit of a remarkable thing uh, that we share a faith with people of more languages than I can number around the world, but we also share a faith with saints through the centuries. It's really a remarkable thing. You read the Nicene Creed and say, people in the fourth century were reading this. 
And we, we are all held together, and the reason that we are held together is because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, remembering them and remembering him, I think we get to a little bit of the rub of the passage. Uh, he says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, it's a little bit arcane because you're not thinking about ceremonial foods. Uh, but remembering our leaders, remembering that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we are not to be led away by diverse and strange teachings, rather strengthened by grace. And in this case, the strange teaching had to do with food, and it's contrasted with grace. But that's really just a... a, a you know, an, an, an instance. It's a symbol in a sense. The big contrast everywhere in the Bible, from the third chapter of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, is the ground of salvation. Why will you be saved? On what ground will you be saved? Once the fall happens, in chapter 3, to whom does salvation belong? The Bible says in several places that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's of the Lord. How stringently do you take that? How literally do you take that? Every church goer knows this in principle. It's in the Bible. You know, but what about the reality? Simply put, does your salvation, does your relationship with God, does your hope of eternal life, does your hope really even that your prayers will be answered? Does your hope that God is paying attention to you and listening to you when you pray arise from what you do or from what he has done? That's the rub all the way through the Bible. Is it because you've eaten certain kind of foods or is it because of the grace of God? Will you be saved by what you do? eating certain foods, or will you be saved by what God has done in sending Jesus to die in your place? This is something that needs to be considered all the time. Everybody wants and needs salvation. And let's just stretch that out a little bit and see if we can get beyond the religious terminology. We want and need something around which to build our lives. From that thing around which we build our lives, we derive purpose, and we have a measure to see how we're doing. All of us look in the mirror and ask the question, how am I doing? And our emotions rise and fall depending on whether or not we think we've succeeded or whether or not we think we failed. We're an emotional roller coaster unless we get fed up with all of it and steel ourselves against it and become Stoic or become Buddhist uh, in non-attachment. But even then, we look in the mirror. You know, from this thing around which we build our lives, we hope to be respected, maybe even loved. From it, we hope to be free. All of us are trying to be saved in one way or another. And the question is, on what, by what are you trying to be saved? Is it the food you're eating? And, of course, if you're a radical 
transhumanist vegan. It might be, uh, but, but it's probably not the food that you're eating. But what else is? You know, for most of us, it could be the acquisition of wealth. Do you have enough? Especially those of us who are moving toward retirement. Uh, the money makes us secure. The stock market makes us nervous. Uh, it could be property. It could be family. It could be relationship, a relationship that you have to have, and you judge yourself. Your ups and downs depend on the tenor of that relationship. Uh, it could be the acquisition of power or authority. Of, it could be social position. It could be safety, performance. The list could go on and on. You know, the best way to detect these things is just to step back and, <clears throat> and examine the presence of negative emotion. What are the things that make you anxious? What are the things that make you worry? Better put, at least for me, you know, what are the things that make you angry? You know, where, where does anger derive from? You know, I, I, you know the easy answer to that, and, and, and this is a, a, a fallacy, is that I am made angry by this thing that happened to me. But it's just not the case. Because sometimes that thing happens to me and I'm angry, and sometimes it happens to me and I'm not. And the things that make me angry don't make my wife angry. Because we have different grids through which we interpret those events that come into our lives. And so when I find myself getting angry, getting steamed, when I find myself fretting and losing sleep, I have to ask the question, what is, what is the God of my life? Where am I putting my hopes? On what do I hope to find life, to find meaning, to find a safe place, a secure place from which to look out on the world? And so there are these diverse and strange teachings is, the, is what the way the writer describes them. Diverse and strange teachings, not that are just coming from Judaizers, not just coming from arcane uh, Jewish teachings in the first century, but there are diverse and strange teachings that are coming to us straight from Madison Avenue. There are diverse and strange teachings that are coming to us from the NCAA. There are diverse and strange teachings that are coming to us from Fox News and from CNN, not to mention MSNBC. Diverse and strange teachings. And, and the writer here is preaching. He's saying to them, don't be led astray by those things. Because it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And that's where we've got to take a step back and say, let's be absolutely sure what we mean by the word grace. <clears throat> Uh, this is certainly has nothing to do with graciousness. I love it when people are gracious, but that's not the grace of God. It is not simply the companion of beauty. It is not simply God's benevolence, his sending rain on the just and the unjust. Grace is, at its core, a gift. It's a gift given to the undeserving. And it's not a simple gift that can be received politely. It's an overwhelming gift that changes everything. It changes everything. It inverts all human conceptions of value. We were talking about this in the Sunday school class this morning. Uh, from where do you derive glory? Where is glory to be located for you? And the Pharisees were criticized as seeking the glory 
that comes from man rather than the glory of God. They despise the glory of God. And, and when we think about the glory of God, we need to be very clear about where that glory of God is displayed most accurately, and it's in the face of Jesus Christ when he's on the cross. And that grace comes uh, as a gift to those that don't deserve it. When you know you don't deserve it, when you can hardly believe that it's come to you, that's what grace is. It's the gift of, of Jesus Christ's substitutionary death. It's the gift that comes to the one who is guilty, undeserving, and yet the gift comes nonetheless. Uh, one of you uh, this week sent me a quote from Keller, uh, knowing uh, what the week was like for all of us. And, and here's the quote. It's pretty strong. It's pretty long, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. At one point he said, uh, don't think of love abstractly. Jesus is the love of God in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. Do you know what was happening? All the greatest forces in the universe were arrayed against Jesus. And he could have stopped them. He could have stopped the rejection. He could have stopped the torture. He could have stopped the death. He could have stopped the rejection of his father. He could have stopped eternal justice coming down on his head. All he had to do was give up on us. That's all he had to do, just walk away. Jesus was up on the cross, bleeding and dying, looking down on the people betraying him and forsaking him and denying him. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, he stayed. Bomb after bomb after bomb was coming down on Jesus Christ, trying to get him to drop us, to separate him from us. And even hell itself could not do it. He stayed. Nothing could separate him from us, from his love from us. For us, He held on to us. He was our Savior. He died for us. Now that's how you know nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's not an abstraction. It's not just saying, oh, I just believe that God loves me unconditionally. No, he loves you counter-conditionally. He loves you against conditions because of Jesus. That's the grace of God. It's good for your hearts to be strengthened by that grace and not by strange and diverse teachings, not by the allure and by the lies uh, that, are, that you're being pummeled with all the time. That's why the apostle can write that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness. The passage in Titus, it's at the top of the page. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God enables us to walk away from the false gods, to walk away from the strange and diverse teachings. And as long as you hang on to and prefer your money, your property, your family, your relationship, your authority, your social position, your safety, as long as you even prefer life itself, uh, you can't apprehend grace. You can't apprehend the beauty and the power of that grace. There are plenty of stories in the Gospels of those who are upended by grace. Some of those are um, moving stories, uh, and we've gone through some of them in the Sunday school class, but the story of the, the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, uh, who comes and almost effortlessly loves the Lord her God with all her heart, soul, strength, and mind, emptying out 
uh, her professional vial on the feet of Jesus. Uh, life turned upside down. Life upended because of the grace of God. Uh, the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, we looked at last week in the Sunday school class. Uh, what an amazing, uh, gripping uh, tenacity of faith that she would come to Jesus and ask that her daughter be healed. And Jesus even pushing her away a little bit. You know, wanting to make sure, wanting to actually not even make sure, wanting to display the beauty of her faith in the presence of the Pharisees who didn't believe. He pushed back and said, no, I've only been sent to the Jews. And she said, we, even the dogs, get the crumbs from the table. A life upended. Uh, The bleeding woman in Luke 8. Some of the stories are humorous. The story of Zacchaeus and his outlandish proclamation. Uh, prompting Jesus to say, today's salvation has come to this house. You remember this? He was a despised tax collector. He'd been made wealthy in this uh, illicit profession. And he jumps up and he says, I give half of all I own to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay him back four times. And Jesus says, way to go, Zacchaeus. Way to go, Zach. And also, I think it's it's a humorous interaction with the blind man. Uh, in John chapter 9, especially when he gets in front of the Pharisees and they start grilling him. He said, you guys are supposed to know this. All I know is that I was uh, blind, but now I see. And then Jesus meets him afterwards. And he says, tell me who the Son of Man is. And he says, you're you're talking to him. And he puts his faith in many other stories. Uh, But these are hearts that are strengthened by grace. These are lives that are upended by the overwhelming power of the grace of God, the love of God on the undeserving. And if your heart is strengthened by grace, no loss can destroy you. And you can say and experience that promise up in verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is good for your hearts to be strengthened by grace and not by diverse and strange teachings. What follows, I, I don't really have time to get into it, um, it's pretty detailed. This is where, you know, Hebrews requires a, a whiteboard. Um, but th- there are these details about the way that uh, uh, we have an altar from which those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. You see, when the, when the priests back then, and the, and the Hebrews would have known this, uh, received the sin offerings, some of the offerings they received, they were allowed to eat the meat. But when they received the sin offerings, they had to take the the, uh, the bodies, after they had drained the blood, the carcasses had to go outside the camp and be burned. And, and what the writer is saying here is that they weren't allowed access to that meat, but we get the whole kit and caboodle of Jesus' redemption. You know, what he said in, in John chapter 6, you know, that anyone who would uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood will have life in me. So we, we get to take the whole in, the whole Christ, all of Christ. It's not taken away from us. And then uh, there's also this uh, allusion to uh, going outside the camp and Jesus suffering outside the gate. He was suffered outside the city precincts. And he says, so we can go. Now remember, this is a group of people who are being persecuted. This is a group of people who are thinking about maybe the possibility of getting back into the safety of the synagogue. And he says, when you understand the greatness of Christ and when you understand how overwhelmingly awesome he is, when you understand the full dimensions of his grace, you follow him outside the gate. 
Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach uh, that he endured. And all of this is by grace. All of this is hearts that have been saved by grace, that are being strengthened by grace, that one by one, little by little, are renouncing any self-derived claim to righteousness, that one by one, being hammered by the law, are turning to Christ and being transformed uh, into his image. And as was said at the end of the previous chapter, those are grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we offer God acceptable worship. And worship is alluded to here in these last two verses. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not forget to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So again, it's, it's the language of worship. It's the language of gratitude. I don't know if you've ever heard the prayer of general thanksgiving. Uh, it's in the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, it's fairly well known, although I didn't hear of it until about 10 years ago. But it goes like this. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, As your unworthy servants, we give you most humble and heartfelt thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all people. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of life, but above all, for your precious love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace, and for the hope of glory. And we pray that you would give us that due sense of all your mercies, that our hearts may be sincerely thankful and that we may show forth your praise not only with our lips, but in our lives. By giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, the, the middle of that prayer, after giving thanks, we pray uh, that our hearts might be sincerely thankful that we may show forth your praise not only with our lips but in our lives. You see, these two are inextricably bound together in the Bible. That to praise God is to do good and to share with those who are in need. It's the same thing. Uh, now, let me put it this way. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. Uh, that to come in and to worship and to avail ourselves of the beauty and to remind ourselves of the goodness of God in the gospel is to be motivated uh, to do good uh, to one another. <clears throat> so these verses don't speak of formal worship Sunday morning, but rather of ongoing daily, hourly worship, unceasing praise, good works that benefit our neighbors. And, and I don't know if the writer was thinking this. Some New Testament scholars say the writer is always thinking this. But when a small phrase is alluded to, from an Old Testament passage, um, these writers will say it is good for you to go and understand the whole context of that Old Testament passage. And when he writes here, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, uh, that is a kind of a quote uh, from Hosea chapter 14. And you remember the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea is the prophet that was called to marry a prostitute. And so he experienced on a deeply personal level the unfaithfulness of a beloved bride, uh, just the way the Lord had experienced with Israel. There's a half-hearted kind of fake uh, 
repentance in chapter 6. The Lord chides them over that and actually says, you know, uh, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Something actually that Jesus quoted a couple of times when he was interacting with his opponents. And so the, the mind is drawn to Hebrew or to the book of Hosea. And at the end in Hosea 14, there's this great, glorious, full-throated, honest, with integrity, repentance. You know, they come back and they praise the Lord and they get rid of all their excuses and they get rid of all of their defenses and they vindicate the Lord and say, your judgments are just. And they, and they say, we are no longer going to say our gods to the things that we have made. We're no longer going to worship according to these, uh, these uh, various and strange teachings. We're no longer going to worship the things that the world puts in front of us and says, you worship these. We are repenting of that. We're turning away from those idols, and we're turning to face you. So it's a beautiful reflection uh, on the basis of what it is that Christ has done, on the basis of the grace by which we are strengthened. So one of the regular reflections at a funeral or a memorial service is Psalm 90. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's the one psalm in the Old Testament, I think, in the Psalter that was written by Moses. Uh, and we are told to number our days that we may get a heart of freedom. And, uh, and that's the upshot, I think, of remembering our leaders who have gone before us. Uh, that we Actually, it's a prayer that Moses utters uh, that God would teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Every sermon, in, in a sense, is a funeral sermon, isn't it? Uh, because everyone is asking us, it's calling us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Uh, we always have room to repent. We always have room. This is the, the, the conundrum. It's the agony of it, but it's the beauty of it. By this, we are getting ready to spend eternity with our Father. We always have room to repent. We always have room uh, to believe the good news. I was told early on that Martin Luther said something, and I scoured Luther, and I can't find that he ever said it. So if he didn't say it, he should have said it. But he said, "I, I, I preach the gospel to my congregation every Sunday because every Sunday they forget it. And so we come back to this. Let's have our hearts strengthened by grace and not these diverse and strange teachings. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are utterly dependent on your Spirit uh, to come and penetrate our hearts, uh, to use the Word, to plant it deep into our souls so that it might bear fruit from there a fruit that is pleasing to you, uh, the fruit of lips that will praise you and of uh, good works uh, toward our neighbors. Father, bind us together. Give us room to repent. Uh, Give us room to believe more than we have up to this point. In Jesus' name, amen.